0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Space Drunk Podcast. My name is Annie Hanmer and this is part two of the episode with Tom Standage, who's the Deputy Editor at The Economist in London. In this episode, we get more deeply into a discussion about Tom's experiences over his career as an editor and journalist in the field of science and technology. I hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, you can look at other episodes on the podcast app where you found this one. You can also head over to YouTube and watch this episode in video form. Just look up Uh, the Space Junk Podcast on YouTube, and you should be able to spot the same logo and find this episode. It's part two with Tom Standage. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please.
0: Now, you are a specialist in science and technology and a writer on that subject. So I wanted to begin by asking you what interests you in science and technology and and what got you interested in the first place?
1: So I do a bunch of things that might not appear to be that similar to each other, but there is a logic to it. Um, Basically, I grew up reading a lot of science fiction and... um, I was 11 when sort of home computers became available. So I got my first home computer when I was 11 and started programming. So I was very much that generation of people in the 80s. Um, and I read a lot of Asimov and I read a lot of Arthur C. Clarke. And I basically, I went to Oxford in the late 80s because I wanted to build AIs. Um, and I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and build robots that could talk. And, and, you know, and I spent my teenage years, I wrote programs that kind of did you know, chatbots, conversation holding, um, poetry writing, that kind of stuff, um, so that 's what I was really interested in. I wanted to kind of know what the future was going to be like, and i wanted to I wanted to make that science fiction future um, sort of happen and you see this a lot today actually that the the technologies that people are developing are uh, you know if you want to see the future, look at science fiction because um, you know, the 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 smart speaker the amazon echo is basically the computer from star trek and mm. jeff bezos is a massive star trek fan and said i think we should build that thing um, you know similarly elon musk is building stuff that he's read about in in sci-fi and, you, and in his case you know he names the drone ships after ships in ian m banks uh, novels so um, so, you know, there is this sort of motivation among people with an engineering mindset that, that um, you know, they grow up reading this kind of science fiction, they're really interested. I was always into astronomy when I was little as well. Um, and you know, so you want to kind of go and get involved in building building that future. Um, then what happened, of course, is I discovered that AI didn't work because AI didn't work in the, in the late 80s. It's only really started working in the last seven years. Um, you know as a confluence of lots of new technologies new techniques the fact we've got more data and so on um so i couldn't do that and uh instead the internet had appeared and i learned how to use it as a student and then i realized that n- the british media didn't have anyone who knew about the internet and so i started pitching stories to the guardian and the independent and other newspapers about this thing called the internet and there was lots of interest in that So it was basically my ticket into journalism um but then it turned out that um there were all these supplements in the newspapers. It was the 1990s and that was, uh, you know, the papers were making a lot of money from the advertising from, uh, the internet service providers and the modem manufacturers. It was big, big, you know, boom area. And, um, and I thought to myself, this is great, but this is not going to last. And I, what I really need to do, if I'm going to stay in journalism is, is go from covering this, you know, this boom, this is an important subject, but I need to kind of be a serious science and technology, uh, journalist and I have, you know, degree in, I mean, at the time you couldn't actually do computer science at Oxford. You had to do it with engineering or with maths and I'd done it with engineering. So I had done a lot of physical sciences um, and a lot of maths and um, as well as a computer science. And so um, so I, I then applied for a job at The Economist to cover science and technology and it's probably, you know, one of the most enjoyable periods of my career when I first went to The Economist and I just wrote about basically astronomy, space probes, um, you know, space startups, because there were a bunch of them then uh, that that failed, um, uh, And then, you know, the insides of microchips, uh, material science, uh, you know, basically anything that wasn't biology, unless it was computational biology or genetics, which is kind of closer to my part of the map. So it was my ticket into journalism and then into science journalism. And then I've been at The Economist ever since doing, you know, science and technology and futurology journalism. But this is the place where it all kind of joins up, because you've got the sci-fi there, you've got the journalism, Um, And then I also have this great interest in history. And I've been Mm -hmm. writing history books since the the late 90s where I I look at a particular period of history which is informative about the present. And the first book I did on this was called The Victorian Internet. And that's the period of Queen Victoria rather than the state of Victoria. Um, And um, This was basically telling the story of the telegraph network and how it spread around the world in the nineteenth century, and how the social reactions to it were exactly the same as the social reactions to the internet in the nineteen nineties when the book came out. Um, And I've basically done that joke again and again. The second book I wrote was about the discovery of the planet Neptune, um, and the Neptune file, as it was called, and. Um, essentially Neptune was discovered, you know, through this process of mathematical analysis, um, uh, two mathematicians figured out that it had to be there because the orbit of Uranus was irregular and they figured out where roughly it might be. And then one of them, you know, predicted it absolutely right. And so, so the planet was discovered. So it was a bit like the radial velocity discovery of planets where we can infer that the planets are there for the behavior of the stars, even though we can't see them directly. And only much more recently, have been, we've been able to do direct imaging of exoplanets. Um, so I've also had this interest in, in talking about the present and the future through the lens of the past. So how does all this join up? And I think it's because um, if basically the thing that drives me is I want to I want to live in the future. I want to understand the future. I want to know what it's going to be like. And that uh, there are three ways to do that. Um, the first is to look in the past for historical analogies, so I do that. The second is to go and find the edge cases in the present, the people who are making a difference. I remember the first time I met Elon Musk in 2003, and I thought, this guy is completely out of his mind. Um, and every time I've met him since, of course, he has seemed less mad. Well, actually, it does seem a bit mad sometimes, but but he's his whole kind of, yeah, I'm going to build these reusable spaceships and we're all going to go to Mars. Um, the first time I heard him do that shtick, I was like, "Yeah, right." And then he's he has done all the things that he said he was going to do. Since then, he was going to make these reusable rockets. He was, you know, and, and so now he talks about a Starship and all the rest of it. You kind of you've got to give him credit. You know, he's done all the other things he said he was going to do. Um, and, and he does this. You know, he built that massive battery farm in Australia. You know, he's now he's basically being dared by the American government to build ventilators. Anyway, so the second place to look is in the present, in the edge cases, the people who are. This, you know, William Gibson idea that the future is unevenly distributed. Um, it's already here, but it's unevenly distributed. So if you know where to look in the present, you can see glimpses of the future. And, you know, going to Tesla or SpaceX would be an example of that. And then the third place to look for the future is in the imagined futures of science fiction. So all of those things, actually, the journalism, the history, the science fiction, all were actually versions of the same thing, which is I'm trying to figure out what the future looks like. And the, um, one of the hats I wear at The Economist now is I run our futurology franchises. So we have an annual called The World In, um, and The World In 2021 is the next edition, which will come out in November of this year. Uh, So I'm the editor of that, and that means commissioning people to write about the future, but just the next year. And then we also have an annual that comes out in the magazine itself, in the middle, called The World If, uh, in July. And that's much more kind of wide-ranging scenarios about crazy things, you know, decades into the future, but as if The Economist is reporting From the future so uh so i very much enjoy doing that so i this sounds like a bit of a mixed bag of things but from where i'm sitting it all fits together perfectly logically
0: it's perfectly logical to me and you know as the person who runs the space junk podcast i run it for the specific reason that there are so many disparate elements that i think are so interesting and come together in the in precisely the way that you've described where it it isn't that at the first glance they make sense. But when you find the common thread and you draw that thread and you bring them together, they make perfect sense. And so this is how I justify the sort of the junk on Space Junk Podcast, which of course this isn't. And I wanted to, I wanted to um, zero in on this idea of trying to predict the future, which I love. I love the idea that The Economist is doing this project of writing about, you know, the world next year, but also writing as if we're already in the future. But I think something that you've written about before and that I agree with is that engineers and people working in technology are often really bad at predicting what it is that we're going to
1: like. Well, to be honest, most most people are bad. I mean, everyone's bad at predicting the future. There are a few sort of super predictors who are very good at it, but most people have very big you know cognitive biases about what they want the future to be like and they tend to kind of imagine the future that that they want or in the case of engineers and innovators they actually go and build the future that they want and mm. um, you know that's the way that's the way they influence it so um so, I think, yes, it is hard, but yes, a recurring trope in the history of science and technology is that the, the worst person to ask about what a technology will be good for is the person who invents it. And this, of course, is if you buy the idea that you have kind of single inventors. Generally, ideas are kind of around and things get invented lots of times. Lots of people invent the telegraph, lots of people invent the steam engine. Um, mm. It's just some people do a better job of you know, commercializing it or making it work than others. And it's very much a sort of iterative process. So, you, you very rarely have the sort of hero. Um, engineer character uh, you just get sort of people who are more driven than others Samuel Morse was a very driven person he wasn't a particularly good engineer and in fact he had other people who did that kind of stuff for him um, Edison was very smart and you know generally did know a lot of uh, of electrical theory um, but then he figured out how to sort of industrialize the process of, of invention and get other mm. people to scale up his ability to, in, to invent things. Um, so yes, you do get this, um, phenomenon. Edison is a good example of this when he invents the phonograph. Um, and it is, that's basically him pretty much, you know, he's got a couple of people in his workshop helping him, but that's basically him doing it. Um, he predicts, um, what it might be used for and one of the things he thinks it will be used for is a sort of answering machine that goes by your front door so when someone comes to visit you um and you're not in they can leave a message uh and i don't know about you but that's not something that that ended up being and and the idea that it would be used to record music um only occurs to people sort of a little bit afterwards i mean to be honest the first photographs were were pretty horrible in audio quality so you wouldn't have wanted to use them to record music but um you know that that turns out to be so then he thought well maybe people will use it for elocution lessons there could be a sort of educational use of the photograph again that didn't turn out to be like a massive it basically turned out to be something for music um Mm -hmm. and you get this time and time again which is that people kind of you know they invent things and they think this will be used for that and then and most of the time you, Most of the time, people find other uses for stuff. The cool thing about the internet is the people who invented it were just kind of like, we need to just figure out how to get computers to talk to each other. And we need to do it in the most simple way we can so that we don't constrain the ways that people will think of using this in the future. And that's the genius of, of TCP IP. And what you know, Bob Kahn and Vint Cerf did was that they, they invented this in such a kind of flexible way uh, that they didn't constrain Future permissionless innovation on the internet. So I think that was good because um, whether they knew it or not, they were sort of being um, humble about you know the fact that they didn't know what it would get used for. And they were just like, "Here's the standard, get on with it, everyone." So yeah. they, they did, and here we are.
0: Well, that's sort of a common thread that links together many really breakout companies. Like if you think about Google, Amazon, Facebook, um, Alibaba, all of those companies are not selling a thing they're providing a platform through which a thing is sold i mean absolutely the same with um uber and well we've been using a lot here deliveroo the the food yeah, yeah. services and so on ebay i mean these these are no
1: those are platforms i mean there's a, there's a separate platforms. thing i think of platforms yeah so so yeah. and platforms are built to do a specific thing so they are you know uber decided it was going to you know, it's a marketplace that brings together riders and drivers. Is you know mm. what Uber does. So yes, you can then use that same platform to bring together takeaway restaurants and and eaters of uh, sure. diners. Um, so, um, but yeah, I think it's a slightly. I think inventions are. Um, I mean, it, platforms have to be built in a. They are businesses, so they're built in a different way. I think the 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 interesting thing is this idea that you know people invent um, you know fundamental technologies and um, and then don't really um, don't really get how they're going to be used and it's only when they get out into the world and that's what i find really interesting about the history of technology is this sort of social impact of technology and the mm. social history of things which is where the technology meets human nature and what what i find is very very striking is that throughout history and going back you know the whole of recorded history people react to technologies in very sort of similar ways and and i you know i think that's not surprising i think that different technologies come and go but they push the same old buttons in our stone age brains and mm. i think the I think human nature hasn't changed. And we're basically the same sort of, you know, Neolithic. um, We're running the same Neolithic OS in our brains that, you know, people were for the last 10,000 years. So it's not surprising that Victorians react to telegraphs the same way that, um, you know, that people in, in the in the 20th century react to emails and that um, romans you know use social media in a way that looks very similar to uh, you know to the way that, that people send messages today. So so I like finding these analogies because it's it's basically the same joke, which is that the, the technologies change but people don't. Mm. The reason I think that the reason we need to say that is because um, what tends to happen is that new technologies get blamed for bad things that people do with them, so you get like, "Oh, the internet means that you know people are doing this bad thing, which they couldn 't have done if they didn 't have the internet But it t- so cybercrime would be a classic example of that. It turns out there was cybercrime on the electric telegraph network, um, and in fact, the first cyber attack in history took place in the 1830s on the first ever network, which was the um, the French Telegraph networks—the first national data network—it was built. Napoleon kind of got it started um, in the 1790s and 1800s, and then um, it was built to cover the whole country. And in the 1830s, there was a stock market scam that was being executed by basically doing um, side channel, well, traffic manipulation on this on this network. So. Um, that tells you that if you build a network, people are going to find ways to do bad things with it. And you shouldn't blame the network for like making them into criminals. People, there are just some people who always find criminal uses for technology. So what I was, what I was originally trying to do with that point and the kind of moral panic that you often get around technologies is to say, don't just blame the technology. It's, that's a kind of easy knee-jerk thing to do. And um, actually these behaviors arise because of the interaction between the way people are and, and what technologies let them do.
0: Mm. So that moral panic thing is kind of one narrative that we see cropping up again and again and again with new technologies. But as a journalist and working in this field, how do you think about constructing more complex stories around technologies? Because it would be so easy, as you say, just to say, oh, there's this new thing called TikTok and, you know, people are using it to, like, spread bad information or something. Uh, And you'd miss a whole aspect of it you'd miss you'd miss so much of the richness of the social interaction with this new technology
1: so um obviously the moral panic stories are kind of tabloid stories about you know internet you know leads to bad thing um well, internet divorces that was I know, there was a moral panic about internet divorces because uh, the internet made it too easy for people to like find their old boyfriends and girlfriends on on facebook and then like start messaging them, messaging them again and saying actually i'm really annoyed with my spouse and you know, let's get together again so that was like let's blame the internet for for the you know that's a kind of classic example of of um, well you know if they could have actually just got a phone book out of, before and is this really a technology specific thing you know mm-hmm. you could have been, you know if back in the in the neolithic period you might like have said well i'm going to go to that village and look up look up my old girlfriend so you know is this really maybe the technology so you tend to get those reactions from i mean the, the economist doesn't do those kinds of stories yeah. um and i think one of the when I was on the science pages, you know, one of the really enjoyable things about working on the science pages is the challenge, and it's a bit like writing a detective story. I think it's kind of got the same narrative satisfaction to it as a as a Sherlock Holmes short story, uh, but it's the challenge of writing a, a succinct description of a new discovery um, or a new innovation or the result of a new paper in a way that is um, comprehensible to ordinary readers who are not specialists, but it's not offensive to specialists. Mm. Um, so so it's finding the right, so when I write those kinds of stories, I spend a lot of time talking to the researchers about, okay, the way I'm going to explain this is with this analogy or like this. Um, and i remember talking to david deutsch who's the sort of godfather of quantum computing about this once and he was talking about how in a quantum computer you set the you know atoms up in this superposition of states um, so they're sort of um, you know they they they're locked together by this kind of quantum weirdness and then you manipulate them by firing laser pulses at them this is one of the ways you can build a quantum computer and i remember i i was trying to look for an analogy and the analogy he came up with was imagine you've got a washing line and you've got Um, bottles of, you know, milk bottles hanging from it, they've got different amounts of water in them. When you wiggle the washing line at different frequencies, different milk bottles will wobble up and down, but, you know, depending on the frequency. Um, I don't know if I ended up using that analogy, but that was the kind of conversation that I very often have with scientists, Mm. um, because they would want to get it right. And the really um, rewarding thing about this um, and the period that I did it, and it's still the case today, when I ring up a, and I, I wrote a piece for the Christmas issue of The Economist at the end of last year about... Um, basically, the the the, lo- the history of the of the architecture of the of the solar system. So, you know, planetary formation, Jupiter and the Grand Tack, uh, the Nice model, all of these things that I'm sure you know about. about basically, how the planets got to be where they are today. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and it was lovely speaking to all of the scientists involved in all of that. And it was it took me back to you know when I when I did that kind of science r- uh, reporting every week because. Scientists always liked being rung up by The economists because they knew we wouldn't get it wrong. We'd Mm. kind of not misrepresent what what they were doing too much. And this is because we would work so closely with them to make sure that our explanations were were accurate and comprehensible. But also something that they would very often say is that they would use our reporting of their work to explain what they did to their friends and family. Uh, They could say, look, Here's what I do, and they could give them this Economist article, and it would be right. A in the Economist, and B not wrong, and C <laughs> comprehensible. And so, um, so I think that's the. So I think so for me, a big part of it is constructing the story in a way that is um, is accurate, uh, is not sensationalist, obviously, um, uh, and not kind of being moral panic about the internet or whatever. Um, and then I think joining dots and finding sort of here are three examples of this or, um, you know, this approach in this field is being applied in, in this field. So, so you know, I'm looking at the moment at the way that um, AI machine learning, as it should probably be called, is, is being applied in fundamental scientific research. And of course, there's a lot of interest in whether it can accelerate um, coronavirus um, treatments and and vaccine development and so on at the moment but there's a whole load of work but it's a, I mean, there was a fantastic paper that just came out uh, a few weeks ago by Collins et al on the use of machine learning to discover new antibiotics and um, it's a really really clever approach which doesn't where they basically give the they give the machine learning system the the structure of a bunch of molecules and the kinds of bioactivity that those molecules have and and then it It looks, it sort of predicts what other molecules might be able to do that. But there's no information about the mechanism in the middle. So you can't sort of, it takes away the human, the humans would say, oh, what's the mechanism? This might work because that works this way. And the machine Mm -hmm. learning system has no, it doesn't know about biology at all. It's just doing pattern matching. So uh, there's some really fascinating work being done. And so looking across sort of multiple, then similarly, there's a, in material science, there was a very interesting paper last year that predicted, um materials that might have certain properties based on linguistic analysis of a big big pile of material science papers. so again the machine has no idea about material science it doesn't know what the periodic table is it just says oh these words kept popping up with these words so maybe you should try mixing this this rare earth with this rare earth and you might get these um these characteristics so um so i also like kind of that um Generalizing using using these very specific examples to illuminate a, a general trend in, in science and technology reporting that's a that's that's an important thing. And then there's the kind of you know where the where the technology meets society. So there's some you know the, obviously now that the internet is everywhere, um, you know every story can be an internet story. But we, we've got our very good um, Asia technology editor Hal, who's based Hal Hodgson, who's based in uh, in Hong Kong, um, and he is doing reporting this week about how the um the sort of the surveillance systems that some countries have around um that have had them already have they been able to repurpose them and and use them for um for basically tracking you know movements of people and um and assessing who's at risk of of getting the virus and so on um and so it's that kind of combination of authoritarianism meets uh, sort of you know public policy meets public health um and that's what that's what makes all of this so interesting that previously people like me were writing about computers and some people were interested in that and some people weren't but now what these technologies can do affects everything um, mm. and in all these unexpected political and social ways and um and so th- you know that makes this a, a you know this has become a much, much more significant you know topic and it's everywhere. And it's sort of, um, I think it's amazing that, you know, China has used these apps that show, show a kind of red, red, red orange or, or green code to say whether or not you can move around and, Um, you know they've had alibaba and tencent build these systems that and they can do that because they've got these you know big tech giants who basically do whatever the government tells them and um and they've got the whole country using them pretty much so um so that has given them a a, a tremendous advantage but in the west we would say well hang on a minute um you know this looks an awful lot like surveillance and yet actually a massive amount of surveillance is in under these circumstances uh, a good thing to have so you know how do we balance the you know the the public interest and the and the sort of civil liberties against the the need to clamp down and be more authoritarian, as we just have been in this country, where the prime minister's saying, "Right, I've asked you very nicely, folks, and you haven't haven't done what you're told, so I'm now going to, I'm now going to demand that you you stay at home and make it you know you'll make it legally required." Yeah. Anyway, so, so d- d- technology touches everything, and that just means yeah, um, uh, that's what makes it so interesting to write about.
0: I find what you were saying about. Um, machine learning and the value of the machine being that not so much in what it does know, but in what it doesn't know that yep. ignorance that it has being it's it's, it's
1: not encumbered by the human kind of uh, biases or judgments or or i mean you know, there are problems with ai bias where you you, know, you train a, a a recruitment system on your best employees and it turns out they're all white men and then it only wants to hire white men but yeah. um but in this case in this case you're just giving it like here are a bunch of molecular structures and here's a bunch of of activities and um you're not yeah you're not constraining it by what 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 as a as a human scientist you might think is well that would never work like that you know so that yeah. that gives it kind of freedom to to suggest things that you know, a human might not
0: but I think that's kind of a, an element that comes through in really good science reporting and technology reporting, which is that it's not telling the reader what to think it's telling the reader what to think about and I think in the in the way that you've explained how you construct these stories and so on. I mean, it's so important, as you say, that what is in the article is right, because for most people, they don't go and read the original scientific paper or the, the the treatise that was written by this person. They read the article that's published in The Economist. And so getting it right is is so crucial.
1: That's another thing that scientists have said to us over the years, which is that, um, I mean, you know, it's become... it's. There's so much being published everywhere, but, yeah. but, a kind of, if you, but as a kind of radar of what interesting papers are appearing in other fields, um, a lot of people use our science pages as a, a way of doing that. I mean, you can, obviously, you can subscribe to Science and Nature as well, but there's just a lot to read there. So if you want someone to kind of look out for the most um, significant papers, um, then mm. you know, that's, that's a job we can do for you.
0: Yeah. But then in your reporting, you're pulling out the bits that the science can't answer which is the what ought we do, what should we do, what's right, what's wrong, what's ethical, what's unethical. Well,
1: we do that in the leader pages. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And I think also, you know, science, scientific papers are written in a, um, a very specific conservative way. And so, um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, a paper will be interesting because it will it will allude to or cast light on you know, some potentially much bigger question that the scientists may or may not feel they want to, you know, where, uh, anything relating to looking for life on Mars with methane for example um yeah. you know you get these methane papers and the methane numbers from Mars just don't make any sense and no one really knows what the hell's going on um and behind every conversation you have with scientists about that is like so is it life <laughs> and, <laughs> sure. and um and uh, and so um and they they generally you know uh, they're not going to want to allude to that in the papers that they write about it but um but then you know when they're talking to the press then you say well what do you think about this (laughs) so um so yeah that's there is a yeah you're not going to get that from reading the, the scientific papers you're going to have to fill that in yourself and I think mm. what a lo- the questions a lot of people have about these sorts of things uh, you know, it's our job as journalists to ask the scientists and say so what about that <laughs> or to yeah. put that kind of speculation in, in the right context and give people the tools to sort of understand the debate
0: yeah well let's talk space then um, and you mentioned Mars and methane and the search for life when you're writing about space topics, is that the key interest I- is the key interest about life
1: elsewhere in the universe um i don't know i think there's lots of there's lots of interests um it's basically the key interest is there are big questions that we um that we don't know the answers to and we want to know the answers to and that's true in um every you know field of um scientific research there's just some particularly big questions when it comes to this kind of research so you know um are we alone in the universe is there life elsewhere if we do find life on mars will it be genetically similar to ours in other words it, could we have I mean, there's the theories that, you know, life emerges first on, on Mars and is then transferred to Earth. Um, or, you know, could life have evolved somewhere else? This is a big trope in science fiction, you know, are, is all life in the universe, um, you know, is there panspermia and the cor- common origin of life? Or do you get evolution of complex life separately in different places? You know, these are all, those are all big questions. Um, then there's sort of big, big you know, exoplanet research is, you know, interesting for the same reason, because we're interested in knowing how widespread Um, planetary systems are. But then there's also kind of big questions about the origin of the solar system. And uh, one of the things that interests me about exoplanet research is that the light that that casts on, you know, so why, why did we not end up with a hot Jupiter? What stopped Jupiter from going into the sun. And it seems the answer is that Saturn was right behind it and you get this interaction, planet disc interaction. So, so mm. Jupiter's younger brother was like, Whoa, hold on a minute, mate. You don't want to go in the sun. <laughs> and so we don't, so Jupiter comes in about as close as the, um, the orbit of Mars and then, and then goes out again, you get this grand tap. That seems to be kind of, there's quite a lot of evidence for that. Um, and so, uh, that's an area where the, the, looking at our solar system, which seems to be quite unusual, and looking at exoplanetary systems, they can cast light on each other. And mm. uh, and so I find that very interesting. So, yes, there are these big fundamental questions. And there are, you know, there are obviously big fundamental questions in lots of fields and in and in non-scientific fields, you know, in, in academic fields in, in general. Um, but uh, that's really what drives, you know, that's what drives the scientists who are trying to answer the questions. And that's what drives the stories that you can write about them, which is that these are basically big mystery stories. And here's a clue. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and that, that I, you know, I mean, you know, you can criticize the kind of um, the, the detective novel structure of a science story, which was, there was a mystery. People couldn't figure out this. Now there's a paper which suggests this. And the reason is this. And then you get this wonderful paragraph where you get to explain kind of what's different now from what we understood, what we understood before. But you know, those are very, very satisfying stories to write and very satisfying stories to read. And so mm. I think that's part of it too.
0: Now, as a journalist, how has your job changed over time? You're an editor now. And when you look back over your career, has, have there been big shifts? It seems as an outsider looking in that your job must have changed enormously over the last 20 years even.
1: Well, so it's weird. So journalism has changed a lot. But The Economist has, um, and The Economist obviously we've had to, we've added a lot of digital content and I've been involved in that and sort of digital product design and um and uh, product innovation and so on has been another of the hats that I've worn as a you know as a member of the staff that knows about computers because that's one you know that's what I did at university so um so i I've, I've that has happened and obviously you know we have apps and uh, uh newsletters and websites and all that, and make videos and do podcasts and they, they, so so in that respect the activity of journalism has has broadened uh mm-hmm. although it's still basically doing the same thing asking questions of people and trying to make sense of stuff um and then the industry itself has gone through this very you know painful shift because advertising which used to go to newspapers and radio stations now goes to facebook and google um and um you know, the peak was in two thousand and eight, um, and advertising has basically fallen off a cliff. Then, the mm-hmm. Economist is very lucky because we never had a business model that was absolutely based on advertising. We've always um, had a very large fraction of our revenue, and it's now nearly all of our revenue. But it's it's never it's always been a big chunk of the revenue has come from the readers, from subscribers. So while advertising was there, we took advertisers' money and put lots of ad pages in the Economist, and it was great um, and made you know lots of money, but. Uh, but we're still profitable now. Um, and you know, we can be profitable just with revenue from our subscribers. So in that sense, um, we haven't been affected by the the storm. though the, the if you look at what's happened to other newspapers, there've been you know massive layoffs, lots of newspapers have shut down, lots of consolidation. And in fact, um, you know, one of the first desks that gets it in the neck is that with mean, the foreign reporting generally does, and then the science desks generally people go, Do we really need this? you know. Um and so, you know, that's that's been a very scary thing. And we at The Economist, we have been able to benefit from this and take good people from other newspapers um, that have, you know, other publications that have been shrinking. Um, mm. so, so we're very lucky that we've been insulated from that to a great extent. So there's the kind of um, external structural change of the industry, both in terms of, you know, the impact of technology on how you do journalism, uh, but also the impact of technology on how much money there is to do it. And then um, just, you know, within... Uh, within The Economist, um, my role has, you know, I've just done a, diff- a number of different things. So I, I covered science and technology as a correspondent for the first few years. And then I was made um, tech editor. So I ran our sort of magazine within a magazine, Tech Quarterly, um, which was great fun. I did that for about 10 years. Uh, I was also business editor. Then I ran the back half of the paper, which is business, finance, science and technology. And then I ran all our digital stuff for a few years. And then I've been deputy editor for the past, what is it, five years now? Um, And I've now kind of got this futurology franchise and sort of oversight of long form stuff and bit of product innovation. Um, And so um, I think one of the uh, kind of classic distinctions that's usually made that doesn't really apply at The Economist is between writer and editor. Mm. So um, the kind of classic, I and mean, this is particularly strong uh, division in, in American journalism, but you know, the, the old joke is that all writers wish they were editors because editors have such power over their copy and all editors wish they were still writers because they kind of enjoyed going out there in the world and reporting and you know, it was much more fun than being an editor and being stuck to a desk. The nice thing about The Economist is that everyone is a writer and an editor um so pretty much every, i mean in fact i was editing the science pages of the economist the second week i got there uh, because the right. science editor was away and i had done you know i they knew i could do it because i I'd, I'd been an editor at the telegraph before um but uh, but, but we don't have um so newspapers will have sub editors who make copy fit to pages we don't have sub editors the economist everyone does it we don't have they also write headlines we do that ourselves uh, most newspapers have separate people who write the leader articles again we don't have separate people to do that. The Economist, we all do it. Um, mm. And particularly under these sorts of circumstances where, you know, we're all having to kind of, um, you know, improvise how we how we put the newspaper together remotely. Um, the fact that everyone is a writer and everyone is an editor is sort of, you know, even more uh, apparent. Um, so that's kind of nice because, um, because we still get to do, um, you know, and even the editor-in-chief, you know, even the most senior journalists at The Economist will get to do some on the ground reporting at some point, you know, during the year if they want to. Um, and, uh, and similarly, even, you know, quite junior correspondents get asked to sit in for a section editor and, and, uh, and edit things. So, um, so in that sense, um, it's all a big kind of soup. And uh, <laughs> I, I, again, haven't, haven't had to go through a sort of transition from being a writer to be an editor that I would have done if I'd been on an on American newspaper set.
0: Yes. Well, on that note, I think I'd better let you get back to it. And um, thank you. You've been listening to Space Junk. To get in contact, head to Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok and look for at Annie You can also email me on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast's continued running costs, you can go to www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod.